Pagam sa mamdis. My mama uses power. Thank you for listening. Bye. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Mom Jeans. Today we are going to be busting a myth surrounding the impact of racism on body liberation. There is no body liberation and acceptance without black liberation. So anti-racism and the privileges you hold in the body positivity movement are extremely important topics to always be keeping centered in the body acceptance conversations. Today's myth that we are busting is there are no hierarchy of bodies or the thought that if there is, quote unquote, I am colorblind and I accept all bodies. We will be highlighting the concept of how colorblindness and denial of inherent racism have continued to allow people to ignore racial discrimination, which continues to harm and impact people experiencing both macro and microaggressions as a result of the color of their skin. Now, we are two white podcast hosts, so we acknowledge that our white privilege and lack of lived experience of being on the receiving end of racism definitely does not render us to be able to cover this topic effectively. So we are going to give you a few thoughts, but then we are honored and thrilled to have our guest, Christina Johnson, dietitian, join us today to bust this myth. Yes, some of you who follow us and listen to us to help you navigate your body acceptance and healing your relationship with food might wonder what this myth and the topic of racism has to do with body image and body acceptance. So the reason we chose this myth is because, once again, there's no body liberation without dismantling racism and body hierarchies. And there's no individual body acceptance without ending the discrimination that so many receive just because of the body they are in. So while it is common for many to exclaim, I just don't see color, or I don't have a racist bone in my body, it is actually very privileged to be able to utter those words, which means that you are not acknowledging the body hierarchy that has been construed over thousands of years and continues in our society to this day. This horrific and unjust body hierarchy impacts everyone's relationship with food, with their bodies, and with one another. Eating disorders are stereotypically the rich white girl's disease, with roots going back to the 1920s when thinness began to be associated with wealth and leisure and a way to gain social power. This also had racist roots as white women began to use thinness to delineate their bodies from black women. For more on the history of racism and diet culture, we recommend the book Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. 
However, access to food and healthcare resources, mistreatment due to discrimination, and the intergenerational trauma of racism that's passed down from generation to generation absolutely affect one's body autonomy and body trust. So in studies done in 2011, black teenagers are 50% more likely than white teenagers to exhibit binging and purging bulimic behavior. Hispanics are significantly more likely to suffer from bulimia nervosa than non-Hispanic peers. And teenage girls from low-income families are 153% more likely to struggle with bulimia than girls from wealthy families. And all these stats are found on NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Association. And yet, most media-based stories about eating disorders center the thin, financially privileged white girl. So this narrative does not acknowledge the fact that not just white bodies, but all bodies, black, brown, gay, and trans bodies, are also vulnerable to using food to cope with emotional turmoil. And the treatment of disordered eating needs to acknowledge the individual's racial and ethnic background and lived experience in this racist, fatphobic, capitalistic society, since it has a direct correlation to one's body trust and body autonomy. So in addition to the above, we want to acknowledge how the body positive movement has been taken over by thin white women, us included. So as we are speaking from this privilege, we are not trying to take over this movement. Instead, we are trying to bring light to others' voices and acknowledge the true meaning of body respect and trust. We are learning every day, and we want to take you all with us on our journey of becoming more and more anti-racist, of learning how to help guide people in their healing process as white clinicians in straight-sized bodies, which are the majority of the people in our field, and how the field of eating disorder recovery and body positivity can be fully inclusive to all bodies, races, cultures, and ethnicities. All right, should we bust this myth? Yes! All right, let's do it. We are welcoming Christina Johnson. She is a registered dietitian who works with disordered eating, eating disorders, and intuitive eating. She practices from a social justice, person-centered, health-at-every-size framework. All right, let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode. Uh, we are going to be chatting with Christina Johnson. And yeah, hey Christina, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yay. So we are gonna get right in and uh, talk about busting this myth. And the myth we're talking about today is that uh, there is no hierarchy of bodies and race and that I am colorblind and I don't see any colors. So it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be an awesome topic. I'm very excited. And yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about who you are and ultimately why you're coming on today to help us bust this myth. Yes, so I am a registered dietitian and I primarily work with eating disorders and disordered eating um, and helping my clients find their way to intuitive eating. And I do this all from a lens of social justice and understanding the systems that occur around a person, um, the systems of oppression that occur around a person and how they interact with the systems that occur around them. And 
when I hear that statement that I am colorblind, I just like, I always come back to, wow, that must be such a blissful state to live in that you don't have to acknowledge that like you have a, a, like a, a culture. Like it just sounds really relaxing. I'm, I'm wondering how your blood pressure is because I bet it's better than mine. Like what a state to be in. Little, I don't want to say jealous because I'm not jealous. Like I don't want to live that particular life, but it just sounds more peaceful. It's like you're allowed to have your head in the sand and like, that seems nice. And it ultimately is, right? It is more peaceful. And I think that just speaks to privilege, right? And individuals not recognizing or maybe just not being aware. Like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you're not aware that that's actually privilege and not appropriate, right? We need to be recognizing. We need to be acknowledging that this is privilege, right? Yeah. And then I asked myself the question of like, what kind of social circle do you have that like, and like that that's still a thing that you don't think about? Like that tells me a lot about your social circle and that you are just not challenged. Like in, in no part of this, are you challenged to like have to think about the fact that someone else has a different lived experience as you in that particular part of their life? Because I'm thinking, I'm like, well, could we say prior to 2020, we should have dealt with this? But I'm like, nah, Rodney King happened in the 90s. So like, I don't really know what right. to tell you. <laughs> Sounds like, like this myth is more based in denial and lack of awareness. Yes. It's very much based in denial, very much based in it's really uncomfortable for me to have to sit with the fact that I have privilege here. And so instead to to quell my own anxiety about my privilege, none of us have like it just isn't even a thing. It doesn't even exist. I mean, our next question is kind of a big one because we're talking about a pretty intense topic here, but as far as this myth's history or origination, could you give us a little bit of background based on especially your educational angle of being a dietitian and then also the social justice components about how you saw this myth really start to originate and now perpetuate itself in our culture? Yeah, I think, um, and I'm going to put a really specific lens on this here in a second, but I think it's it comes from this place of like, I've been thinking about this a lot of like, how what privilege has to exist for you to build an entire system and then also in the same breath be like we need to tear this down you built the system and now you're saying that we need to tear it down like why build the system in the first place but it comes from this place of like we built a system we built a racial hierarchy that says these bodies are more uh more moral right good bad they are more uh inherently worthy of value they have more social stature than someone else's body. And we're basing this purely on skin tone, uh, head circumference, if you will, if we want to use that as a scientific marker. But really it was just, I looked at you and I didn't like your skin tone, so I'm going to put you in the category of other. Because as human beings, we like to categorize people. That is how our brain is structured. So I'm not going to fault you on the way that your brain is structured, but I am going to fault you when you choose to use it to harm other people. And so with this, we create these categories, we create this social hierarchy of who's at the top, who's at the bottom. And at the top of this social category would be people of European descent, but specifically uh, Western European descent, not Eastern European descent, because there is a distinguishing factor there. And so as we've created this hierarchy, we've come, we've moved along in time, we're fast forwarding to the last you know, couple hundred years where now we're saying, oh no, we created a social hierarchy and this didn't work out well. We've created this system in which people are clearly oppressed. And so in order to make myself feel better and to sort of hopefully mitigate the harm and maybe move towards 
a colorblind society, and I'm putting air quotes around that because it's never going to exist. Um, I'm going to say that I don't see color. I'm going to, to make myself feel better about the privilege that I have and about this system of harm that we've set in place. I'm going to say that I don't see the thing that's oppressing you. So now I don't have to do anything about it because I don't even see it. And so then this shows up and I, I see this in my own personal work of the ways that we've tried to teach nutrition from a colorblind lens while still putting other people's culture at the bottom of the, the hierarchy by saying your cultural foods are quote, not healthy. They do not provide you with nutrition when in fact they do. All food has some nutritional value in some way, shape or form. Like, come on, we know this, we're dietitians, we know this. Um, or it shows up in, in markers that we use to determine health that we are like, oh, this is race blind when in fact it's not. We can look at the differences in the way that high blood pressure shows up in one population versus another. So clearly we need something going on there to help us understand what's happening in these two different situations. But yet we don't, and then we just blame that particular culture for, for having a higher prevalence of high blood pressure without first questioning, okay, but why? Can you circle back, because I can see maybe listeners wanting a little bit more. So you made a distinction between Western European and Eastern European. Can you touch back on that? Yes. So Western European being like French, German, uh, Scandinavian, so like Finnish, Swedish, right? Things that would be uh, considered, quote, Aryan, right? Blonde hair, blue eyed Aryan versus uh, uh, Eastern European gets closer to Russia, closer to Asia. Uh, it starts to not be as Aryan. They have darker features, usually have darker hair, darker eye color. We're looking at how does that 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 genotype, right? How does that physical presentation of someone show up in their features that they don't have to alter in order to fit that standard? So if the standard is thin, blonde haired, blue eyed, very light skin tone, these people do not have to alter anything about themselves to fit into that narrative. So I can hear people saying like, well, how is all this harmful, right? Like, okay, I'm not recognizing my own privilege. I, I, I don't feel like I'm contributing to the issue, right? Like I'm just living in my own safe bubble. I was told ultimately to be colorblind. Now I'm trying to work on that. But how is all of that harmful? The best way I can explain it to you is that we don't intend, I, I am going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you don't intend to benefit from racism, but that does not mean that you don't benefit. Your intentionality is not the issue here. It is that by default, you benefit. So whether or not you're aware of it, the microaggressions that may be coming from you or the ones that you allow from the people in your social circle, because you don't know how to check it because you don't know it's there, right? So you don't intend to cause harm, but because you're not aware, because you don't see race, you're allowing the harm to keep going. Right. And how does this affect people's bodies? Because I can see people disconnecting race and bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this comes up, uh, and I was talking to my intern about this today, is this comes up in the form of body terrorism in that uh, the ways that we connect to our person, right? So like, if I see someone who has some shared identity with me, I'm going to feel connected to them. Random example here, Beyonce. I might feel connected to Beyonce because 
you know, strong black woman, her and I, we have that in common. Uh, not exactly the same body type, but that's a whole different story for a different day because Beyonce's current body type is not actually Beyonce's body type. We don't have to talk about that. Um, but I might feel connected to her on that level of like, right, strong black woman. If I see Beyonce harmed, I feel directly harmed because we have that shared identity. So when I see people who look like me harmed, I feel unsafe in my own person. When I see caricatures of myself in, in, in the news or in the media, in social media or in, in, in movies, I feel directly harmed because you turned my person into a caricature. You said in order to be a black woman, I have to be a particular type of black woman. And even that black woman still isn't accepted. She's still not appreciated. She's just the sidekick. She's the sassy friend that tells you how it is, but doesn't actually have a backstory and doesn't actually have a personality. That's harmful to not be a fully fleshed out person when I see myself portrayed on the big screen or to see it, but I'm, I'm a sidekick. I'm not the main story. And I think you're talking about these microaggressions that ultimately are affecting an individual's health, right? You're saying like, oh, okay, well, this culture may have higher blood pressure, but because there are these continuous microaggressions, microtraumas that ultimately contribute to their health and individuals that experience privilege and don't experience those microaggressions, of course we would have less right? Like as a white individual, yes, I maybe have lower blood pressure because I'm not experiencing those daily microaggressions. Or you're always more manageable, right? Mm -hmm. So I was reading a study and one of the things that they pointed out was the thought, not the act of, not the consequence, but the thought of a microaggression was going to send my blood pressure up. Damn right? The thought of it, me thinking about how this could go down. And as I'm saying this to you right now, I get chills because I'm like, yep, that's still reality. I still feel that way. Where if I think about, I'm going to go into this situation, a lived example here, where I go to work and my boss calls me aggressive, right? My blood pressure goes up about thinking, having to think about going to work because am I going to be called aggressive? Am I going to get in trouble for this decision, right? I'm having to second guess all of the things that I'm thinking about as I'm going through my day. I'm thinking, okay, is, is my tone, is my tone okay? Do I sound aggressive? What's my body language like? Is my body language, right? Having to think about this and having to think about what I'm thinking about and how I'm presenting myself to the world instead of just showing up authentically, that's terrible for my blood pressure. I mean, you're talking about always having to live on the defense, and that's exactly what this myth is about. You know that the world is not colorblind. You know there is a hierarchy that is still happening in our society that you are aware of. And so for someone to say there's not really a hierarchy, it's because they're not experiencing or they're higher up on the ladder and they're not experiencing it as much. And so you're saying, no, 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 trust me, there's there's a hierarchy. It's still there, and I, I'm feeling it, and it's impacting my health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and- – I will bring it back to things that like people can tangibly see. So I'm like, if you don't believe me that there's a hierarchy, let me explain it to you. I was born in the 90s. I could not go into the Walgreens and the targets of the world and find my own foundation shade until I was well into college. Yeah. Damn. Right. That's some crazy that's shit. Not that long ago. Yeah. That's so recent. Yes. That, like that's recent yes. or the fact that even if I go into the targets and the Walmarts of the world to find my foundation shade, sometimes I'm the darkest shade 
And that doesn't make any sense because there are plenty of people with deeper, richer, more melanated skin tones than me. And so you're saying like literally in the late 2000s that that was that time period. I Yeah, I actively remember like being in college and like seeing my foundation shade in the store for the first time and being like, wow, this is fascinating. Like, and buying the bottle and it matching not just the skin tone, but then the undertone, right? A little color theory for you there, right? Not all black people or people of color have like a red undertone. Some of us are golden. Some of us are more neutral. Like there's, there's layers, there's complexity. And having this, the tone, like the actual like color match, but then the undertone match, like it was golden like me. And that was such a fun, just like, huh, okay. And I mean, I don't give a lick about makeup, but you know, if you love makeup, I love that for you. But just like having that experience of being able to do that, knowing that growing up, I saw all of my friends go to the store and get makeup and not think twice about it. Right, it's that othering that you're coming back to. Like if these are the only options, then I also feel like othered because clearly I'm not a mainstream and therefore I'm an other. And it starts getting into that system. And then the people who are, who have the makeup options that they can easily access, they now think that those people are other. And it plays into this very inherent subconscious racism that's occurring and and this hierarchy that keeps occurring. I want to come back to this body image piece because, so as a, a dietitian, you know, I work through individuals' body image distortions, let's say, and trying to bring them in their own journey to a healed relationship, though we're speaking in this topic today, which is why Rachel and I wanted to bring it up, which is like, well, but how, how does that happen if we live in a culture that is constantly perpetuating this body hierarchy and whatnot. And then coming back to the microaggressions and the trauma, I mean, there is research around this constant body preoccupation and thoughts around the body that that's creating tiny little traumas and that ultimately can keep our bodies at a state of unrest, let's say, right? Can you speak to more of that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, I think it's really hard to process through what that means in live time when it's a perpetual thing. Right. Right. We start to hit that harm reduction territory of how can I help you take care of yourself, knowing that you're going to keep facing this. And as much as I want to change this for you, I, as one person, can't change the system. It takes a lot of us to, to dismantle that particular system. And so as I'm working with my clients, it becomes, hey, let's let's notice when we don't feel safe in our body. Let's notice that. Let's notice what that feels like so that we know when that's coming, or we can sort of gauge how we're moving along that spectrum. And then what can we do to comfort ourselves? What can we do to bring ourselves some safety? Even if we can't feel safe in our own body, how can we create an environment that we feel safe in, that we're allowed to show up in authentically and not feel like we have to put on some sort of mask or some sort of veneer for the people around us, right? Like what is that space where you don't have to perform proximity to whiteness? For a lot of my, my clients who are, are not white, right? What is that space and how do you create that for yourselves? Because I think that there is this constant, like, constant checking in with yourself about your body image, like, how are you showing up in the world? But then those, those constant microaggressions of, like, um, what if my skin tone's not the right skin tone? What if I, my skin's too dark? 
what if my hair texture is not the right hair texture because it's too curly, it's too tightly, tightly coiled, it's too dense, it's too this, it's too that. I don't see my own hair represented in the mainstream. I don't, at least not well. If I see it, it's a part of the caricature, right? Or I don't see my skin tone represented well, it's a part of the caricature. I don't see um, my dialect represented well, except when it's being talked poorly about, as though I'm not intelligent or I am a less of a, a citizen, if you will. And how, like, how are those things impacting this person? And where can we create a safe space? Like, we're just gonna, we're gonna, if that's at home, if that's with our friends, where we're like, I just get to take the mask off. I just get to relax. And like, even if I don't necessarily currently feel safe in my body, I do feel safe with the people that I'm with. And that helps bring down that unrest just a little bit, just, just, it's releasing the valve just a little bit to let some of that steam right. out. And there's a part of me that wants to bring more awareness to individuals listening of being like, let's recognize the privilege of, and I, I don't support this, but going down the path of weight loss, right? So we have individuals saying like, oh, you know, I'm trying to lose weight, or I feel like my kid, which this is a whole nother terrible conversation but like my kid is too fat and I'm trying to lose weight there's privilege within that of saying ultimately this body type is not worth or respectful enough to stay at right and so I'm just constantly trying to achieve this thinness and forcing my child to achieve this thinness or even for yourself but your child's picking up on that so what is that saying to other cultures that Mm -hmm have that body type right as just a natural state mm-hmm. it's the assimilation piece right i've talked about our our achievement of a thin ideal or a particular body type as a way of achieving assimilation our way of working ourselves into the culture to to hopefully hopefully right fingers crossed experience less harm right because that's really always our goal in life is to experience less harm like Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, all right, how am I going to get my feelings hurt today? Can't wait. Like, that's, that's not how we wake up as people. And so when we, when we think about it from that angle, from that lens, it quickly becomes, I understand, like, I have so much compassion and so much empathy for people who are pursuing weight loss as a means of assimilation in a culture that lets them know the body that they woke up in today is not okay. It's like, not safe. I get it. Yeah. It's not safe. Like that's hard. Yeah. But I also want to remind you that that has nothing to do with your body and everything to do with the culture. Well, that was my thought as well. When you're talking about, you know, you you treat eating disorders, Tina and I treat eating disorders as well. And, and this podcast is based on this premise of how do we help people learn how to develop more body trust and body attunement. And I think what's unique about your perspective of being the dietitian as well is that I'm curious how you're seeing this hierarchy or even the denial of the hierarchy and the refusal to change the systems, acknowledge the systems, continuing to impact people's ability to heal their relationship with their body and, and heal their relationship with food. I think it shows up in who is an eating disorder professional, right? Our ability to work with our clients, for many of us, uh, comes from some semblance of lived experience, right? If you've never experienced body terrorism in a way that you can see people who look like you murdered on the street on live television, like, good luck, Chuck, trying to really, like, sit with what that lived experience feels like. Um, So I think it shows up in that way. I think it shows up in, in the 
who is an eating disorder professional in terms of like the body type that we associate with an eating disorder professional or the body type we associate with who's a dietitian, right? That hierarchy and the way that it's showing up and how that by no fault of our own, right? We always have to check our own privilege, check our bias. How does that show up in session? How did, what conversation is not being had? Because my client maybe doesn't feel safe to have the conversation with me because they're like, how can she relate? Right, if I don't address that first and let them know like, oh, I'm open to have the conversation and like, you tell me how you feel about it and I'm just gonna sit with you on how you feel about it because how I feel about it doesn't really matter in this moment in time. And half to sometimes my understanding of it doesn't really matter as long as what's more important here in this situation is how you feel about it, and how it's affecting you. Um, I think it also shows up in um, sort of the way that we are navigating, like, how do we create these, these models, these treatment models, right? So like standard treatment model has, does a poor job of working with marginalized groups like a really poor job. And if we don't, creating that body trust is really difficult when the model was not designed for you. Like, how do I help you create body trust when I don't even, when I don't know what that looks like for you? It, it isn't. It's not, it's not an equal platform, right? It's, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I just think this, the purpose of this episode, I feel like is to bring more awareness. That's what I'm trying to do for our listeners. And so if, if we have clinicians listening to this, it's recognizing that, oh, wait, yeah, maybe I need to do a little bit more research and digging to make sure that I'm sending my client to a place that feels partly safe. Even if it can't honor the full marginalized identity, it can at least hit it a little bit, right? And um, yeah. I don't want to call it. Any- open for discussion yeah. as opposed to we're just not even going to address Right. And I think it's hard because, you know, I don't want to name any treatment centers, but it's like, I think there's like one or two, maybe, maybe that are working on it, right? And then the rest, it's like, ooh, you're so far behind, right? You're, you're, it's not even an active discussion, but that, I mean, yeah. there's so many things we could be discussing that we could improve on needing to sort of treat yeah. like, yeah, whew, like, how do you pick the one to start with? I know. Right? So I'm going to shift it into more of a parental discussion. So, you know, we are speaking to parents um, and trying to provide more education to parents of going, hey, let's build awareness so that ultimately your kids can grow up in in a better environment, a more aware environment, and they aren't passing on that harm as well. So how can parents support themselves? in challenging this myth so it really doesn't pass on get passed on through generation to generation representation matters okay like two words right representation matters when i think of my own childhood and all of the different ethnicities religions body types that i was exposed to it makes it really easy for me as an adult to not be threatened by someone else's identity because i'm so used to it i i've seen it in my whole life right i grew up in st louis and i grew up in St. Louis in the 90s when there was a large influx of Bosnian immigrants. Uh, there were refugees uh, as a part of, I think it was like a Bosnian civil war or something. Um, so it's normal to me to have uh, Islam as like a really close thing to where I am. Like that's very normal to me to have a mosque down the street. Like I don't, I don't think about it. It's not something that I'm just like, what do you mean you put a mosque in down the street? Super normal to me, makes total sense. 
But because I was exposed to it over the course of time, and these people, they go to school with me, I'm in classrooms with them, I work with them, I see them in the grocery store, there's no, there's no threat, right? But if I grew, grew up with this super isolated where everyone looks like me, most people have the same socioeconomic status, we all probably practice the same religion or at least have the same fundamental spiritual beliefs, right? Like my understanding of diversity, it becomes my, my own personal identity becomes very quickly threatened by the, by the introduction of something new. It's so interesting. So my husband and I are in our hometown currently um and we're like driving around and and like this town is a dying town it it literally is and then bringing up just with the current state the election and the results and all this stuff of being like i mean this town people are shocked right and it it just sparked a larger conversation of like, well, but no one leaves. This town, it's you don't leave. You you were born here. You grew up here. You moved maybe a street away from where you grew up and you had your family. And then literally your retirement was maybe a street over. Like people don't leave. And so I think it's it's a really important awareness of like if that's if that's your vibe okay fine but there are other ways to expand yourself if you don't feel right moving if you don't want to leave the town and that sort of culture is something you want to carry on that's fine but i think it is really important to expand your awareness, expand the cultural awareness to be like, what else is happening in this country, in this world? And you can do that without physically leaving your space, right? Oh, for certain, right? Thank goodness for the internet. We've had it for a while now. <laughs> like, wow, run a Googler. And I don't mean that in the like, come on, do better. But I mean that like genuinely. The internet is your friend in this particular situation and that you can see how other people are living their lives around the world without ever leaving the comfort of your home and you can expand your worldview. Uh, you can order a book from the internet. They will ship it straight to your, your living space and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You can now read a book about someone else's lived experience yeah, without ever leaving your house, right? Like I can think of, and a friend of mine recently had a kid and you better believe I'm going to send her lots of books with kids who don't look like her, right? That's my job as the godparent, especially the godparent from a different ethnic group to make sure that that kid grows up and knows that all people are worthy. All people are worthy of love and respect and honor. That is my job. So I feel like that's a very tangible goal for parents of being like, wait, I can show representation through books, through what we're watching, right? It can be such small changes of being like, well, maybe let me watch something that has more than just what we look like, right? Then that can have such a strong influence. If you need a suggestion, I would yes. highly suggest it's on Amazon uh -huh. for like two bucks. We have Rogers and Hammerstein, Cinderella with Brandy. So first of all, Brandy's black. So Cinderella was black. She like Prince Charming was Asian. Mom was, I think mom was black. Dad was white. Fairy Godmother was Whitney Houston. Like, can we talk about the cast? Like what, what a situation. Still my favorite rendition of Cinderella, by the way. I felt so seen, so represented, but like that little thing, right? Like as we're seeing this of like, Look at this, this family, this blended family came together and what, what did that do for them? 
I think, too, not only is it the representation, but it's also the conversations and the language being used. I think it's very easy for parents to kind of default into, well, other people think like that or other people live like that or believe certain things, especially when it comes to religion or politics or other things. And instead of having that conversation with that type of language, that's not helping anything. You 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 can't have the conversation, but use that language. That's not changing anything. It's so much more of having the inclusive language when you're having the conversation. So I was curious if you had anything to add about like how people can have that conversation with their kids in a kid-friendly manner, but that is really helping the kid to have such a different attitude about whatever the topic is. I think especially that like younger age, it's it's really helpful for it to just be really descriptive of like, this is your body, right. this is their body. Not this is better, that is better. In the sense, right? this yeah. is yours, that's theirs. This is what you have, that's what they have. And that's okay. This is- Right, right. Yeah. right. Each of you has something and that's okay. This is, oh, little Timmy, that's what their family, that's, yeah, their family does that when they go home and that's okay. And this is what we do when we go home. Both are okay. Both are both are totally fine, except when they're not, right? But yeah, that really like both of these can be true at the same time and both are okay. Do you have any closing thoughts to this? I feel like it's, we could literally talk about this forever and I feel like it's hard to jam it into 30 minutes. Let's just be real, right? Do you have anything else to add that we really haven't touched on enough or to kind of close it up? Um, the one thing that I think uh, is really important, whether you're a parent, not a parent, choosing to be a parent, choosing not to be a parent, whoever you are, if you're listening to this, um, being kind to yourself for the things that you didn't know or had a hard time sitting with, right? Like, adding the additional layer of I'm shaming myself for not seeing this or not paying attention to this or not being aware of this does not help anything. No one is helped by that added layer of shame. It's like, give yourself a little grace of like, oh, I, it was not helpful. And in some cases harmful for me to not know this and not pay attention to this. And I'm aware of this. And now I'm going to actively work to do better. Shame, not necessary. That's helpful. I think it's, and then we're going to swing back to this because I think resources are super helpful. One resource, is, one resource that I've been reading has been Anti-Racist Baby. Have you guys? Yes. It's a fabulous. Yes. Her little yes, I love her it. little sock. Ah. And I'm actually reading it with my son who's two. But it has made such an influence on, on me, my husband, my parents who – you know, we um, Zoom or, you know, video while we're reading it. And I'm my parents are like, interesting. So it's okay to not know. And I'm like, yes, it's okay to not know. But then we learn and make change, right? It's like this book that is meant for children is actually helping adults because I think that's where we need to start, right? At the most basic layer and then build off of that so we really understand the work that we're doing. So I think it's okay for parents to be like, I'm actually getting massive benefit from these children's books, right? About inclusivity, about anti-racism, about body positivity. 
Those to me are some of the most absorbable, is that even a word? Yes, absorbable information, right? Do you have any more? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the most absorbable, but I also think it goes back to like that. It's okay to reparent ourselves around this of like, Hey, maybe I learned the wrong thing growing up and that's, that's not okay, but it is what it is. I'm choosing to do better. And I'm going to, those become sound bites where we can play that back in our head. Right. I'm sure you probably like, there's books that you've read your child that you've read 15 times and you know, the whole book by heart. Right. But think about how that's ingrained in your memory now. And if you can do that same thing with a book on anti-racism or a book on body diversity, a book on uh, disability, right? Like how that becomes just a part of your, your schema of how you view the world. So do you have any other favorite resources that we can just spread that love and awareness? Um, off the top of my head, I do not, but I have this list of like kids books that I can love send it. to you that you can we would like. love to link that. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it is. I, there's quite a few on that list that I'm like, I'm definitely going to get those. A friend of mine, actually, she shared with me, um, and it's, I think she called them like mm-hmm. little readers or something where it's like all of these, like they're kids books. Um, but they're about different, like historical figures and a lot of them are like historical black figures so like who was Martin Luther King who was this person who was that person I said I was gonna check those out too because they sound really cute and it was like her way of learning black history but from like such a digestible right uh, I would love that uh we will definitely link that um in our show notes and on the website and in Instagram we also have like a little um book tab what is it called a highlight highlight a book highlight that has additional resources um but I love I love the phrase representation matters so that awareness of just saying like we need more diversity and our eyes our ears we need to be seeing and hearing different uh language um seeing different individuals to different bodies to better raise our awareness and to save our children, ultimately. Yeah. Hey, we're trying to change the future. The kids are the future, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, where can people find you if they want more? You can find me on Instagram at Encouraging Dietitian, or you can find me on Twitter at Encouraging RD. And still on a hiatus because 2020, what a doozy. <laughs> um, but I do have a podcast that is available on like, I think all for streaming platforms at this point called intuitive eating for the culture. Oh, awesome. Sweet. We will definitely link all that. Thank you so much for coming on today and chatting, uh, chatting with us. Thank you for joining us. Fabulous. You're very welcome. That is a wrap on this episode of the MythBuster series. And we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guest's information. And if you love the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LeBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. 
Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.